morning, everybody. Everybody glad to be at church? Let's go. I know it's cold outside, but come on, man. We got it going on today. Man, I was very cold this morning, uh, but was not cold in India. So I've been in India uh, for a couple of weeks and uh, just had a great opportunity to go with one of our partners. She is safe. And uh, Debbie and I both got to go. And uh, so just a couple of things from that trip. We'll have more stories to tell later. And I had to get my pictures cleared because you can't always show pictures from these particular locations. But um, just some of the life change that we were able to see, and I'll start crying just even thinking about it. I know you're shocked. But dozens dozens of stories uh, that we got to hear of just boots on the ground, life change. We got to sit with these two little girls, 13 and 15, um, that had uh, had some skin issues, had lost their hair, had other things going on, so they were outcasts in their culture. Yet these groups had taken them in and wrapped them up, and we were able to sit with them and hug them and pray for them and show them value and see the work that they were doing and hear about the life change that they were experiencing. So that, that was amazing. Um, we got to sit with one, uh, with one wife, uh, and she had been said that she had been isolated in her home, didn't feel like she had any, any value, felt she was very insecure. And so obviously that's something that transcends culture. Anybody in here ever felt insecure? And so, but through She is Safe and the groups that they offer, she was able to show up and they give them tools to learn how to make money and learn how to start businesses and learn how to stand on their own two feet, which was amazing to hear time after time after time and teaching them the gospel. Um, You know, I got to hear a story of an 18-year-old who had been in a restoration home for almost 10 years and been rescued out of uh, being at risk with her two sisters. And to hear her just say thank you, and she said these two words, thank you that I am safe and free. Come on, somebody. Um, And it was amazing. And then also to be able to sit with some of the most marginalized outcasts in India And to pray with them and to tell Jesus stories was probably one of the privileges of my life. And so thank you guys for sending us. But thank you guys for all you do to give to organizations like that. This is what the Hope Offering does. Man, we put hope on the move at home and around the world. And that's just the kind of church that we are. So give yourself a round of applause. Come on. So we are in this series today called What Everyone is Talking About. And today, hopefully you saw, is uh, is on sex and sexuality. Nothing like being out of town for two weeks and coming back to that topic. Hello. Uh, But excited to kind of bring some clarity around that because it does seem to be what everybody's talking about. You know, we had, when we came up with topics for this particular series, we, we polled people and asked questions and got feedback around the topics that everyone was talking about. And this was one of the ones that obviously made it to the top of the list. It always does. And so just a couple of headlines to prove that everyone's talking about it. On October the 27th, less than a month ago, the New York Post, want to have the best sex ever, have an affair. Um, nope, yeah, in church, that one doesn't play well, does it? Uh, <laughs> November 3rd, Vogue magazine. Should women have sex like men? Like, I don't even know what, she, what they meant by that. Um, November the 10th, U.S. News and World Report. Now, keep in mind these particular magazines and, and news uh, media outlets as well. Can sex trigger an asthma attack? I'm like, goodness, I hope not. Like, that feels terrible. Um, in October the 20th uh, in BBC, it says millennials are stuck in sexless marriages, which interestingly, interestingly enough is that even when we're not having sex, what are we doing? We're talking about sex, right? Um, there was a study done of 2,000 people in the United States. They found that over the course of the day, people thought about sex eight times, eight times. And I know what you're thinking. 
Like if you're if you're a, a lady in the room, you're like eight times. Like that must you know, like they must have surveyed only men because eight times. And if you're a guy, you hear eight, you're like either that was a typo or they only surveyed women because it's more like eighty, right? I mean, there's just there's differences of how we think about this, but everybody seems to be talking about it. They found that at least forty percent of people are uncomfortable talking about sex. So you're welcome, 40%. You get it for the next two hours. Um, and so we're just going to unpack a little bit of what, what the Bible has to say about this topic of sex, sexuality. Hey, it's going to be two parts. I want to do some, some things this week, lay some groundwork, and then talk about some things next week. So if we, if we get to the end and you're like, I can't believe he talked about like that, well, there's more to come. And if, you're, get, if we get to the end and it's like, I can't believe he didn't, he didn't cover that, there's more to come, okay? So we're going to do a pretty full uh, uh, treatment on this topic over the next two weeks. And the fun only starts right now. Um, so Philip Yancey, have you guys heard of Philip Yancey? wrote The Jesus I Never Knew, wrote uh, you know, What's So Amazing About Grace, Christian author. He said this. He said, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. And today what I want to do is present a persuasive point of view of God's viewpoint on sex. Amen, somebody? I've been gone for a while. I need some help today. Somebody say amen. amen. Somebody say that's right. Somebody say you're the best. You don't really have to say that again, but I wanted to hear it once, right? Um, listen, I think we can sum up what most people believe God thinks about sex in one word. No. In the words of Megan Trainer, no. Don't do it. And maybe we grew up hearing those words. Maybe there's just some misconceptions about uh, sex and about what God thinks about sex and God's vision of sex and why God created sex. But listen, God gave us the good gift of great sex. Amen, somebody? Right, God gave us the good gift of great sex. And so we want to redeem that today. And we want to see what, if we can capture what the enemy has stolen from us today. You know, there's a, 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 an author that I read this week. He says, the only way you can really know that you trust Jesus as your king, and not everybody in here does, but if you, if you do, and if you believe in the resurrection, is if two, two things, you're financially generous and sexually pure. Okay, this is the way that we can be countercultural. And I know of no other way that the church looks more like the world in the area of sexuality and of what we think. And we've let culture kind of steal it from what God has originally intended. And so my prayer for today, my prayer all week has been one word, redemption. Redemption. To be able to redeem God's plan for sex, but also for those of us who walk in the room full of guilt and regret, man, shame and confusion. We're a redemptive place. Amen, somebody? Like, we want to see grace reign in this room. We want to see grace pervade people's lives. And even when we come to the table with some things in our life that we look at and wish we wouldn't have done or wish we would have done, that, that grace reigns. So even as I teach through this today and as we get to the end, we're going to have a, a fantastic time to be able to offer redemption on this topic. And what if redemption was available. So let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be start out at the beginning, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. Hey, if you have a Bible, love it if you would bring it. 
Um, also, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to be able to give you one. Uh, we have some paperbacks in the breezeways. Feel free to grab one of those and take it home. It's a free gift. Nobody will stop you. Um, and then also, if you have one, we'd love for you to bring it as we just learn what God says and just learn to study God's Word together. But in Genesis chapter 1, I'm just going to start in verse 27 and read two verses. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So, so here we see the first command that God gives to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. You know what that means. It means have sex. Like this is literally the first command that God gives Adam and Eve in the Bible. He says, Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Like, this is God's command. And what we see happen before the command actually is that God created them what? In the image of God. The image of God. The, the, the only way we will ever understand God's plan for sex and how to have great sex is when we begin to understand our own identity. Amen? Right? We can never separate our view of sex and the identity that God has given us as his image bears. We are created in the image of God. Man, so let me just bring a little clarity to that before we move on into some more uh, detailed topics. In, in Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist writes this, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you would care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. And watch this. You have what? Crowned him with glory and honor. Hey, let me tell you something right now. You are royalty. You are royalty. Like no matter what's happened, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, this is God's plan for you. And it is time as royalty to stop eating the crumbs of culture and take our place at the table of the king. Amen, somebody? Listen, I don't know what shame you bring. I don't know how you feel about being royalty, but I want you to remember that you are royalty. We are God's imprint in this world. Listen, when you go and travel around the globe and you go into different countries, what you'll find is in places like Morocco, Iraq, and places where they have dictators, they have statues of the leader all over the country. And they have paintings in every courthouse and on every corner to remind people who's in charge. And God has placed us here as his representatives, that when people look at us, they are reminded that God is in charge, that there is a king and he gets what he wants. Man, and it is our role to fulfill the plans that God has for us in the way that God has for us. So when you want to understand sex, number one, you have to understand your identity. You are royalty. Don't let anybody ever steal that from you. Like, Stephen, I don't feel like royalty. I don't care how you feel. Man, I care what God does in your life. You are royalty. Now, as we continue to move on in this passage, you do look at this command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. I want to talk about just God's intentions for sex. God's intentions for sex. Now, there's seven stated purposes for sex in the Bible. And I think some of them we know, some of them we don't. I'm only going to cover two today. Um, one is procreation. You get that? You have sex, you have babies, right? Like, it's pretty simple. People say this to me all the time. Yeah, you know, we're pregnant. Like, gosh, it was, we weren't really trying, man. It was just, it was a surprise. I'm like, bro, unless you got twin beds, it ain't no surprise, right? <laughs> like, we know. You have sex, you have babies, procreation, that's one. You know, another one is just for knowing. And when you have sex with someone, you know them intimately and deeply. You know them differently than you know anyone else. 
Um, so knowing is a second reason why um, the Bible outlines sex. You know, another one is just comfort. There's a story in the Bible where King David loses, um, where King David loses a, uh, a child. And he and his wife have sex as just as part of the grieving and the mourning process to comfort each other together. So comfort, that's another reason to have sex. You know, another one is protection, to protect us from sexual immorality. We have sex in the context of marriage. I'm going to unpack that in just a minute. But we have it for protection, to protect us and to protect um, our integrity, to protect our sexual identity protection. And the two that I want to talk about, number one is pleasure and number two is oneness. Okay, number one is pleasure. Number two is oneness. You probably want to take notes, especially if you are married. So pleasure, I just want to start with this one because it feels like this has been stolen from the church, right? Like Augustine didn't do us any favors. Augustine, one of the most influential thinkers in Christian history, you know, he kind of tied having sex to original sin. Like that's a bad deal, isn't it, right? Clement of, uh, he was one of Alexandria. He was one of the early popes. Clement limited sex so you couldn't have it 40 days before Easter and 10 days after. And, you know, he had all these rules on it till it was like down to 42 days a year. Now, guys, I know what some of you are thinking about that, but no, that's not really good. And so, like, they just limited it. And so there's all these limits that have been placed on it that are false. Now, clearly there are some boundaries, but, but there's all these limits that have been placed on it that are so false that we forget sex is for pleasure. There's an entire book of the Bible written about sex for pleasure. Come on, right? You've heard the Song of Solomon? I hope you have it because I'm about to read some of it to you. Um, now, most of you have. I did, I did a whole series on this at one point. But the Song of Solomon is actually written, and it describes a couple as they date. And then it describes their honeymoon night. Check this out. When, when uh, rabbinical students were studying the Bible, they couldn't read the Song of Solomon until they were 30 because they felt like it was too erotic. Okay, But I'm going to read it for you right here in public. So let's start out. <laughs> Let's start out in verse 2. Let's start out in verse 2. So in chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. And this is, this is the guy talking. Uh, it says, As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. Then it goes on. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. This is, the, this is obviously the female talking. She says, With great delight, I sat in his shadow. Now, they're on a date here. And, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. What does that mean? Right? They're kissing. You got that? French or not, I don't know, but they're kissing. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. So they're going out for a meal. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. So what you have is in that culture, when they ate together, they would lay down and recline to eat. So what you have is his left hand under her head, right hand embracing her. She's the little spoon. He's the big spoon in this moment, right? Like they're spooning each other. And then you have uh, in verse 7, she says this. She says, I adjure you. In other words, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So what she's saying is, like, hold on. She's like, we got to press the pause button, right? Man, she, she's gotten hot and bothered. She's like, hold on. We, 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 need, to, we, need, to hold, we need to hold up just a minute, right? Because desire... Desire is not good to drive us, man. We can't let desire drive us. Now, this is in the Bible. Let me keep on going just in case you don't believe me. Uh, chapter 4, what, what uh, Solomon is doing, what the, the guy is doing in this, is this is their honeymoon night. And so he is describing her from the head down. And I won't go all the way, but let me just start in verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. 
Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Like, guys, I know what you're thinking. That's beautiful poetry. I'm going to try that. That's not your game, bro, right? That, like, no, no, don't, don't try that. Come up with something different. Your teeth, again, moving down. The teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, and of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me, right? (laughs) So what we see is just this, this poetry, but we see God has created sex for pleasure. Now, now, how are we in such a condition that we even have to be reminded of that in the church? Right? How, we have a God that, quite honestly, created specific body parts for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was pleasure in sex. Like, that's it. Like, that's the good God that we serve. And so we need to, to acknowledge, like, yes, sex is for pleasure, right? It's one of the six reasons God is not anti-sex. Like, that's really one of the big reasons I wanted to point that out to you. Let me me do a little bit of work um, in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 10, it says this. It says, this is her talking now. You know, I was doing him talking, and some of you ladies may have been like, yeah, of course, that's what he said. That's what all guys do. 5, verse 10, she says this. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. I'm not even sure I know what ruddy is, but I like it. She goes on in verse 14. I've been out of town. Um, (laughs) His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. Guys, ladies, we couldn't use the thing about sheep and lambs. You could use this one, okay? His body is polished ivory. Let's go. Bedecked with sapphires. His legs are like alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choices, the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. So in this, you have the woman speaking. You have the man speaking. And then you also have someone else speak. Over in chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Who said that? God did. Right? God did. This is God's design for us. This is God's desire for us. Now, the reason why, the reason why we have parameters in marriage that I want to talk, in uh, parameters on sex, and I want to talk about those, is that it is so powerful, right? It, right? It's so much more than just pleasure. Amen, somebody? Right? It's so much more than just this physical appetite that we have. If we flip back to Genesis chapter 2, kind of back to the creation narrative, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, I'm just going to take that and kind of read through. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of heaven, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So, so you get the picture. You know, Adam's standing there, and the animals are coming by. It's like giraffe, right? Lion, right? 
dog, whatever. He's naming the animals. And it says, the man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There was not found a helper fit for him. Let Let me just explain that real quick. So the word for helper, when we see that, when we see it in the Bible, it's actually many times used for God himself, right? It's actually used for God when he comes alongside and helps humanity, helps people like me and helps people like you. Like it's this term of value. It's this term of worth that he gives. So when we see the word helper, it's not something that's less than. That's an English construct. That's not a Hebrew construct, right? So helper, fit for, means someone just like him, but different. Just like him. They can do some things that he can't do. They can help him. And we see the equality of men and women and how God creates Adam and Eve. It says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. So he takes a rib and he, and he, and he, and he forms Eve out of it. Why a rib? Right? He, he didn't take something from his head because she wasn't above him. didn't take something from his feet because she wasn't below him. God took something from his side because she is equal to him. Then he says this, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman, he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Guys, you got that, right? Leave your father and mother. Got that? We need to talk. And uh, they shall become what? One flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So what we see in this picture, what we see designed is a man, one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. Like this is the image we have. This is the container for sex that we have. One man, one woman, one image, one lifetime. And I know there's a lot to unpack in that statement. Some of that will happen today. Some of that will be next week. And there's this magnetic attraction that happens when you're one flesh. And there's something that God is doing in the midst of that relationship when you're one flesh. When you have sex, you're not just fulfilling a physical appetite. Man, you're connecting emotionally. You're connecting spiritually. There's something that's happening. And the reason why God has designed it that way is because while men and women are so different, we begin to separate. What sex does is this magnetic pull to bring us back together. This is what happens in sex. Even though we're wildly different. Have you noticed this yet? Wildly different, you know? Some would say that in, in marriage, when it comes to sex, there's crockpots and microwaves. And we kind of know which one is which, don't we? Man, crockpots, as a general stereotype, ladies are crockpots. Man, it takes a little while. As that scene from uh, Date Night, which I don't recommend you watching, it was one of the <laughs> sinful things I've done, but when Steve Carell... Is, is, uh, he's married to Tina Fey, and he's trying to make his move, and she's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. First of all, she takes her retainer out, and then she's like, hold on, let me, let me see if I can wrap my mind around it. Does that sound familiar, anybody? Right? Let me just wrap my mind around it. I'm like, what? what? Like, that, that makes no sense. Like, for, for guys, there's three things that we need to be in the mood, to be ready, right? Breathing, breathing, and breathing. We're just different. In that regard. Now, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that, that ladies don't want that relationship. It doesn't mean, it just means that we are different. 
when it comes to our sexual desires and how we process sex, sex and the way that things come together uh, in a sexual relationship. Did, did, have you noticed that, that, guys, we have this spiritual gift, and I'm calling it a gift, to turn every comment into a sexual comment? Have you noticed this? It goes like this. Let's say, you know, y'all are cooking dinner or your wife's cooking dinner or whatever, and, you know, you're hanging out, and she's, you got, you know, spaghetti on the stove, and you got some French bread in the oven, and she's like, honey, can you stir that pot for me? You're like, yeah, I can stir that pot. Stir your pot. Come on. Honey, can you pass the salt and pepper? Oh, you bet I can pass that salt and pepper. Ladies, it's a spiritual gift we have. Don't despise it. Don't despise it. But we just, we're different. But what God does in the context of a sexual relationship is he brings us together with this magnetic attraction. It's the mingling of souls. Sex is the mingling of souls. When he uses this idea of one flesh, we see the image of one flesh in a sexual relationship. But we also have our souls come together and there's something spiritual that happens. There's a quote from a movie uh, it's 20 years old now. Uh, Vanilla Sky wasn't one of Tom Cruise's best movies, but there's, there's a quote in there that's so powerful. In that particular movie, he's got a girlfriend, um, Cameron Diaz, and she makes this quote because she sees the relationship differently than he does. And she says this, when you sleep with someone, your body makes promises even if you don't. Even if you don't. And because it's so powerful and because so much happens beyond just physical appetites, and there's, there's a container for, for sex. It's called marriage. It's a little bit like fire. There's always this analogy that you can use with fire to kind of try to help paint the picture of why this is so important. You know, I, someone gave me a solo stove, one of the best gifts I've ever gotten. And so Debbie and I will sit out back on our patio and um, we'll have a fire in the solo stove. And things burn right in the stove. And they don't spill out because what happens if they spill out? They're going to burn the bricks. Something could catch on fire. It's, it could be dangerous if the fire spills out of the container it's supposed to be in. And this is the same for sex. Inside the container that God has created, inside marriage, I just read Song of Solomon. We just have so much opportunity there, so much greatness that is there, so much uh, satisfaction that is there. But outside, outside the container, it's so destructive, isn't it? so destructive. You know, part of what God does, part of what God does in our sexual relationship in the context of marriage, man, is he, he builds our character, right? He builds our character in the midst of that. Because for guys, one of the things that we're possibly not always in tune with is the emotional needs of our wives, the spiritual needs of our wives, what's going on underneath the hood. And and for us, it helps us to remember, man, it builds our character to be more patient and kind and loving. It's like one guy, one of my mentors told me one time, he says, sex starts in the kitchen. I'm like, well, dude, that sounds kinky. I don't know about that, but tell me more, you know. Uh, just how do you serve your wife, you know. And, and also for women, it helps to build your character and understanding the needs of your husband in ways that you can meet halfway and ways that you can talk about it. So just a couple of practical tips around this. Um, number one, there's got to be some communication that happens. Like from my experience and talking with a couple of counselors this last week, you know, husbands and wives, don't, we, don't, we, don't really think, we don't really communicate well when it comes to Sex, how often, what we like, what we don't like, all those things. We struggle to communicate, and we should, we should communicate. 
in the context of marriage. So maybe the step for you today is just to go home and have this conversation. I know your hands are sweating, but it'll be okay. Because here's what you do. pastor said so. Um, that, that always works. Hey, another thing on the issue of communication, um, one thing that affects how you treat your spouse is how you talk about them when they're not around. Let me say that again. One thing that affects how you treat your spouse is how you talk about them when they're not around. So, so while you may need to go to a trusted counselor to ask some marriage advice, there's never any reason for you to be complaining, demeaning, or diminishing about your spouse to other people. Come on, somebody. Like, ladies, if you're talking about your husband and some of his failures and shortcomings to your friends, it's affecting how you relate to him. And if you do it in front of him, man, there's probably some forgiveness that's going to need to happen. That can create some wounds and divisiveness that you don't even know were there. And guys, you got to watch how you talk about your wife in front of other people. You should talk about your wife in such a way that people realize, man, he actually respects and loves her. He actually likes being married. That's how people should hear you talk about your wife. You have to pursue your wife, guys. You know what that means? It means date nights. It means cleaning the kitchen. It means serving. It means taking out the trash or putting gas in the car. Man, it means being there. It means doing the things you're too tired to do, but she's too tired to do too. You need to pursue your wife. And wives, you just need to get caught. You just need to get caught. If your husband is pursuing you, rather than thinking he must want something, you should be grateful. You should be thankful. And I realize in a marriage, man, there's lots of reasons why we face some sexual challenges. Man, there's health challenges that happen. Um, There's seasons of life that are hard and difficult. And so there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to a great, to great sex in marriage. But listen, it's possible. Man, there's one resource I want to give you. It's called A Celebration of Sex. It's a book um, that you could, a Christian viewpoint, you could walk through that. You don't want to leave it laying around um, for your kids to find. Um, but it's not that bad, but um, it's, it's, not, it's not as bad as what they stumble onto on the Internet, of course, which I'm about to get to in a second. So if you think you're uncomfortable now, just wait. Um, <laughs> but that would be a great resource for you. Listen, we live in, I get it though, we live in a different culture, or so they say. I, I, want, I want you to keep in mind, you are royalty. Okay, you're royalty. I'm going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for our remaining time together. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. Um, Paul is the guy writing this. Now, Paul is writing to a Roman culture, and if I could just be really honest about the, the sexual temperature of Rome during the season, it's way beyond what we experience now. Now, we're in a pretty sexually charged culture. Would you agree with me? Um, Rome was even next level. And so uh, in Rome, it, as, as, a, as a male in Rome, you could have sex with anyone that was kind of below your class. Any female that was below your class, any male that was below your class, any boy or girl that was below your, it was it below your class. Like, it was socially acceptable for that to happen. Prostitution was legal. In fact, they even encouraged it. Felt like it kept soldiers um, more at ease and ready for war. Um, as you began to read, you know, men could have forced sex with their wives at any time they wanted to. And so... There was also a temple of Aphrodite, a cult where they worshipped the god of sex. Sounds a little like us. There were thousands of cult prostitutes there. So so Paul is writing into this culture. And and Christians, 
literally changed the sexual ethic of the Roman Empire. And so Paul, when he's writing this, don't think, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. Listen, first of all, there's nothing new under the sun, right? But also Rome was a sexually charged culture. I'm going to start out in verse 9. Oh, 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 wait, oh, wait, 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 wait. There's also a little context here. Paul has just, has just corrected something that happened, that a man in the church had slept with his dad's wife, his stepmom, right? So you, can, you can go ahead and say, ooh, right? I mean, go ahead. Um, and so now Paul is trying to bring some clarity around this behavior. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, operative word, were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were royalty, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So this is how he sets up this conversation. And then what Paul's going to do, Paul is going to quote something that they would say, and then he's going to bring correction. Does that make sense? So don't think that when he quotes this that he's actually agreeing with it. He is just bringing to light something that they believe in and are leaning into to try to bring some correction. And so in verse 12, it says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So what they were saying is, I can do whatever, right? Grace abounds. God forgives me. We can do whatever. I'm, I'm spiritually mature. It doesn't affect me. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. All right, so let me, let me just unpack a couple of things in, in these two verses before we move on. What Paul is saying, he's like, you have food that goes into your body. It's a physical appetite. We all get hungry. And Paul is saying, yes, food is a physical appetite. And yes, the body is made for that. But sex is not just a physical appetite. Sex is more than just a physical appetite. And he's drawing this distinction between what's just a physical appetite and what we've been told in culture. Hey, we're just hooking up. It's just friends with benefits. And so what Paul is saying is, it's not just that. It's more than that. And Paul says, it's not just physical appetite. And when he uses the word sexually immoral, it's this word pornea. You can you kind of guess the word that comes from that, pornography. It's where we get that word from. And what it refers to in Paul's writing is sex outside of marriage. Sex outside of marriage. Sex is more than just physical. Let me, let me prove it to you. Like, when's the last time you overate and you're like, oh, too many Krispy Kreme. I need to go to counseling. <laughs> right? Oh, shouldn't have drank that much water. I might have to go talk to a friend. <laughs> but you have with sex. It's different. You just need to acknowledge it. There's wounds that happen. There's pain that happens. There's residue that's left. There's more to it than that. It's not just a physical appetite. It's not just a physical appetite. Now, why, am I, why do I keep saying that? Because that is what pornography delivers. It's just a physical appetite. It feeds lust in our hearts. And Jesus said, if you've lusted in your heart, what? 
you've committed adultery. Now, just a little bit on pornography. And what I want to do is be able to address this topic without being judgmental or harsh. Because as guys, you know, we can do that uh, at times. Uh, And if you're not aware, just a couple of things without going too much in depth into it. By most statistics, 70% of men have looked at pornography this week. This week. 30% of women. Surprised? 30% of women. Pornography has more traffic than Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Netflix combined. It takes in more money than the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, and hockey, professional hockey. More income. It's pervasive. 35% of Internet downloads are pornography. The average age, uh, the the person sees it, the the youngest, the age they see it for the first time, 11. 11. You're like, when do I talk to my kids? Probably now. Probably now. And so, so it is pervasive, and what happens, man, it just feeds this lust because it objectifies women. And so we think we're just using it in the privacy of our own home or wherever it may be, but, but that's, it, it's, in fact, it's impacting everything. First of all, it's impacting you. It's impacting your relationships. If you're married, it's impacting your marriage. But also what's happening on the other end of that, that workers in the sex industry, in the porn industry, They have higher rates of depression, drug addiction, and suicide. Listen, this is one of Satan's great lies. One of Satan's great lies. It's just not hurting anybody. At a Senate hearing, it said this, that pornography is a form of heroin usable in the privacy of your own home, directly ingested into the brain through the eyes. And this is the impact it's having. The number one day that people look at pornography, Sunday, when they should be at church. Now, I think that one way to approach this is from an accountability standpoint, but I don't really, I don't really want to do that today. Because, yeah, do you need accountability? Absolutely. But don't we all know that accountability is only as good as you want it to be? Man, you need people to ask questions in your life. Man, we need that. But I just want to ask you, if this is you today, man, what's behind that? Like, what's the reason for that? Like, there's something back there you need to identify. Man, what is it you're trying to hide from? What insecurity are you trying to overcome? Like, what's behind that? And I think if you could begin to find out the answer to that question, oh, you'll find some freedom. Because you know what, porn watcher? You are royalty. And you don't have to present yourself to, as an instrument of Satan like that. Man, you are better than that. What is behind that in your life? Pornography, one of the top two sins most people would say in the church in America these days. One of them is pornography. It comes from the word pornea. Man, culture is beginning to figure some of this out when it comes to sex. Listen to, the, to these headlines. Newsweek What is driving teens' aversion of sex? BuzzFeed, these Gen Z women think sex positivity is overrated. Rolling Stone, come on. Are sex-negative puritines actually taking over the Internet? 
advice why Gen Zers are choosing celibacy. Even culture is figuring out this is not the way to live. This is not what's best. Now, as we keep reading, verse 14 says this, as God raised the Lord will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body for her? As it is written, and he goes back to what we just read in Genesis, the two will become one flesh. So what happens in one flesh, it's like two people get glued together. And then whenever you glue something together, what happens? You can tear it apart, but what happens? There's some residue on either side. There's something that gets left behind. And so that's what Paul is saying. When you have multiple sex partners, what you're preparing for is breakup. What you're preparing for is not one flesh, even though you may think that it is. And even though it may be culturally accepted, it's doing something on the soul level that you may not be able to actually measure. This is what's happening. And so Paul says, if you, you're, you're, you're joined to Christ, what does that mean? You are royalty. So don't do anything that royalty wouldn't do. Listen, guys will say this, you know, I'm just not ready for commitment. I don't think that's it. I think guys are just not ready for intimacy. And they disguise it as commitment because they don't know how else to say it. Let's go on in verse 17. It says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You're royalty. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Notice what he says when he says every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What is he saying? All sins are not the same. You never heard that in church before. All sins are not the same. Does every sin separate you from God? Absolutely. But sexual sin has a different effect in our lives is what Paul is saying. Since every other sin is outside the body, sexual sin is inside the body. Therefore, honor God with your body. So what he's saying is it is different. And just take it one step further. I just want to prove to you that, it's a little, that sexual sin is so much different. Do you remember the first lie? How many people in here would say they ever told a lie? All of us, right? If you didn't raise your hand, you just did. <laughs> but we get it. We lied. You know, maybe we, whenever. Do you remember the first lie that you told? The very first one. You remember? Do you remember the first person you had sex with? Yeah. It's different. Remember the first time you got angry? Probably not. Do you remember the last lie you told? Maybe last week? Maybe this morning? Do you remember the last one you told? Maybe not. Remember the last person you had sex with? Yeah, you do. It's different. And we need to acknowledge it as different. And Paul's just saying sex is different. And then he says this. He says flee. He says flee from it. We're to run from sexual immorality. We're to run from anything that is not God's plan for sex. We're to run. We're to flee. And how do you do that? Right? How do you do that? 
I, I think one of the things is you just need some boundaries in your life, right? You need some boundaries in your life. What are your boundaries? So, like, if you're not married, you need some boundaries in your life. You're like, ah, you know, but Stephen, we're engaged. We're going to get married. It's okay for us. I'm just saying, first of all, what we see God's best for us is sex only when you're married. If it's no big deal, man, justice of the peace will marry you probably this afternoon, right? Just go ahead. Get, knock it out. But if that's the only reason you get married, it's probably going to lead you to some problems. You're like, ah, you know, but I'm, I was married 20 years and now we're divorced. Needs are different. Experiences are different. Man, God hasn't changed. And God knows what's best. Man, he's not trying to prevent us from having a good time. He's trying to protect us from destroying something that he has created. It's so special. Like this is, why don't we just believe God and trust God that he's our king and he's got good things planned for us. And we need some boundaries. So if you're dating, you need some boundaries. Probably they should be your dad sitting between you all the time. <laughs> um, and I've got an application to date my daughter. If any of you guys need it, I've got it on file so you can have it. But, um, and so there's some boundaries that you need to have. Now, now for married, married people, I, I get, uh, these are kind of the Billy Graham rules. And a lot of times they're called old-fashioned, and that's quite all right. Because um, if they'll protect me or anybody, um, I, I'm good with that because I don't want to be a statistic, and neither do you. Um, but one of the things that we have in our family, but also around our offices, we're never in, you know, alone with uh, someone of the opposite sex. It's not in our family. So we're never in the office together. We're never in a car together. You just, you just won't see that. Um, and can, that's just a boundary. I did have a guy tell me one time, that seems old-fashioned. This is as he's confessing an affair to me. And I'm like, well, it feels like I win here. Um, <laughs> not that I'm trying to, but I really am. Because um, it can happen to anybody. Listen, don't think you're above it. The Bible says this, a man should take heed what lest he fall. Lest he fall. You need to set some boundaries up. Your, your, your spouse should know your passwords. Hey, and if they want to check your phone or computer or iPad or mail, you just need to make an agreement right now. I will not be offended. If that's what you need, because what Satan's going to do is put that question and plant that question in your mind. And then it's just going to feed on itself. Listen, Satan's primary tool these days is sex. And to destroy marriages, to destroy culture, to destroy families. Man, we need to set up some boundaries that show we can raise the sexual ethic because God has our best interest in mind. You'll start getting free when you start getting honest. You start getting free when you start getting honest. There's a, a sexual ethic that I read that talks about the Christian ethic that Paul brought. It says, the Christian sex ethic elevated women, it dignified marriage, and redeemed male sexuality. The effect, a slow but effective reform of sexual, sexual ethics in the broader Roman society. In short, the ancient world discovered that the Christian ethic was better for men, for women, for children, and for the state. This is what happened in the Roman world. Listen, God's way is the best way. It's, it's been proven. Just look around at, at the devastation we see these days. Man, God's way is the best way. But also, let's remember Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Since the man and the woman, they were both naked and what? Not ashamed. This is God's plan for sex in the context of marriage. Listen, sex is powerful. Let me just say something. Gospel is more powerful. Redemption is more powerful. Man, God wants to redeem what the enemy has stolen. 
He wants to restore what's been taken down. Man, he wants to release you into freedom today. And so what we want to do is just take a few minutes as we close out our service. Just have a time of prayer where we can pray over you. If you're married today and you're like, my marriage is rocking and rolling, good for you, right? This, that's amazing. But you should also protect it. It says flee. Be sure that you are always running towards health. Man, it, it may be a time for you to come down and just have someone pray over your marriage today. Say, man, we're in a great shape. We want to keep it that way. Just pray for us, for us to have strength, man, for temptation not to set in, for us to serve each other. Man, just, have, just come down and let us pray. We'll be down front. It may be that, um, man, you, you, you want to get married and you haven't been able to get married and you haven't found the right person. You want someone just to pray for you. It may be that you're dating and you're like, hey, we just want God's best for our dating relationship. And we just want God to protect us and uh, give us a hope and a future. And so we would love to pray for you for that. It may be that today you're addicted. You're addicted to pornography or you're addicted to, you're, you're walking in sexual addiction. You don't know what to do. And you've been trying to get out of it and you feel so guilty and shame. Come down, let us pray for you. Nobody knows. We're going to pray for all different kind of things. Let's pray. Because you can stay in your seat and stay in bondage, or you can step out and ask God to save you and make you safe and free today. Man, it may be that your marriage is in a rocky spot. Man, we would love to pray for you. And we just want this to be a place where freedom reigns, where redemption is always at hand. And we want to ask God to do it. Let's pray together.